0: Welcome to Standout Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. My name's Ali Hill and as a psychologist, I love asking people questions. And I thought what better way to do this thing to get the people I admire into a studio to share their stories. This podcast is our corner of the world where all of us can dive deep into what it takes to live a standout life. Occasionally there are conversations that just stick with you. And this is one of those. Whether it's back in the editor of Cosmo Days as a host on the first season of MasterChef, the face behind the international I Quit Sugar movement, of which the eight week program has been completed by 1.5 million people all around the world, it might be through the pages of any one of her international best selling cookbooks, or in the poetic words of her book about anxiety titled First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which was a New York Times bestseller. It's likely that somewhere across her career, you've come across Sarah Wilson. Sarah is a focused, self-confessed perfectionist who oozes curiosity. And it's this deep curiosity about life, about people, and about how occasionally we just have to live in the shit and the pain of it all that Sarah and I connected. Our conversation was done a little bit differently from my other episodes. It wasn't recorded in a recording studio, but it was recorded sharing floor space in a front room. This does mean that the sound quality is a little more relaxed than polished, but I promise you that the conversation is engaging. Sarah walks her talk, encouraging others to live with less through messages about minimalism and anti-consumerism. In fact, her latest book just released called Simplicious Flow is a call to zero waste cooking. We explore a bunch of topics, including her experience with anxiety, Sarah shares that writing First We Make The Beast Beautiful was the process behind her accepting her anxiety and was a form of therapy. This is also one of the first times Sarah shares the decision behind closing her I Quit Sugar business, which she did in February this year, 2018, with the ongoing proceeds going to her philanthropic trust. In a world of hustle and growth, Sarah's reason to go down this path is fascinating. So I invite you to lean in to ask the questions and to get ready to be curious about life as you listen to this conversation with the ever thoughtful Sarah Wilson. Sarah, it's such a delight to be
1: sitting down with you. You too. You too, Ali. It's um, it's always nice to talk with nice, mindful people. You know, spend an hour with them.
0: Yeah, it's actually I was only thinking about this the other day, just how rare it is in our world, and I think getting less and less where we do just spend an hour disconnected, face to face, looking someone
1: in the eye and actually just chatting and being. I think that's why people are flocking to podcasts because it's, they're locked in. They're locked in for either half an hour or an hour of mindful um, sort of thinking, really. Absolutely. And there's something about, yeah, being able to get that audio, I think, in your ears and in those, those interviews and those. And you have to focus. I actually find it really hard. Apart from walking or traveling, which is when I listen to podcasts, I actually can't multitask while podcasting. You know, I find myself having to stop it and, you know, replay it. If, if I do, if I try to go and look at my Instagram, you know, so I actually think it's the salve, you know, the sort of the social media salve.
0: Yeah, something that we're looking for. There's so much that you've done in your career and one of the things that you have done is being able to interview some amazing thinkers of our time, um, people like Richard Branson. Uh, I think I remember reading maybe an interview you did with Brené, Dr. Brené Brown, the very first time she came out here to Australia. Yeah. And you've also met with the Dalai Lama. Yes. Can you tell me what that experience was like? What was it like sitting down, being in the presence of the
1: Dalai Lama? Yeah, he was quite disarming because, um, and I actually open up, First We Make the Beast Beautiful, my my book on anxiety, with the anecdote of being so uptight about what I was actually going to ask him because I was told I should actually only ask one question because he rambles and they were right, he rambles. Um, and, you know, when you have to sort of limit your options down to one thing, it can just send you absolutely mad. That and would be crazy. Yeah, and, and I was fresh one thing? It's gotta be the best thing, it's gotta. <laughs> and I was at the height of my really bad anxiety back then. I was not in a good place. So I fronted up and I just had to say the thing that came to me at first, or reflected where I was at, which was how do you stop your mind from chattering, you know? And at the time he gave me this answer, which was really deflating. He was like, ah, don't bother, you know? Like, you know, you could go and sit on a, you know, if I went and sat in a cave on a mountain for two years and meditated, maybe I could do it. Um, He says, but waste of time, I've got better things to do. And then he rattled off all these things. He'd just been to Japan and caught a flight to New Zealand and he came to Australia and, you know, and I was a bit sort of like, oh, but actually it took me, um, it took me a while. It's like going and getting acupuncture. Sometimes it takes three days before you go, oh, actually it worked, you know. And it was the same with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, because I came back and after a couple of days I went, oh, I get it. Like his whole mindset was about really trying to connect with Western people and where we're at, which is kind of grasping outwards to all these self-help gurus and quick fixes and solutions, the solution. And what he did was go, oh, don't worry about it. Get on with life and live a meaningful life. And his big thing is about getting um, people to live an altruistic life, a life of giving. So free up your energy. Stop trying to go and do that self obsessed, navel-gazing yoga, you know, in a Tibetan monastery, get on with life because that's what matters. So, yeah, I actually found him more powerful than you would probably initially give him credit for. I think he really knows. I think he's hes almost like got this fondness for Western people and our, and our sort of, you know, anxious plight um I suppose he's smart you he can see that the change is going to have to happen with us I'm almost smiling and I can hear the giggle of what are you all worried about yeah <laughs> it's, it's, yeah it's,
0: uh, that inward reflection and um and almost what we I don't
1: know it's the like we we hope for the meme, right? The Instagram meme, that quote that we can catch on. It's almost like that. Well, we want the external fix, right? We want the thing that that we we don't want to have to go and actually do the journey ourselves, right? We just want someone to tell us and preferably somebody as potent as his holiness to tell us, oh, you just have to do this. Um, And what he did was flung it right back at us and said, you know what, stop being so selfish and think that it's all about you finding yourself, get out there and help humanity. And it's interesting actually because, um, you know, having had the anxiety book out for over, for almost two years, it'll be two years in March, it's not quite two years, um, I've really started to feel that the anxiety piece has become something really self-absorbed and self-obsessed. You know, everybody's kind of, you know, wanting... We used to sort of talk about, oh, I just need to find myself. Now it's like, I just need to, you know, not be so anxious. And it's like, well, actually, we need to actually help people. We need to be doing stuff that helps the planet right now, you know. Has it
0: shifted the way that you've seen either the work that you do or how you turn up?
1: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, I've made some very fundamental changes to my life since the book came out and... um, which were sort of coming, you know, um, and, uh, yeah, I and it's also shifted my perspective. I mean, a few things haven't changed, but I've probably amped the messaging around it. So I am very anti-materialism, so I don't buy new shit. You know, that's just... it's. I don't go to the shops, essentially. Um, and so the book that's about to come out at the end of this month um, is... Uh, is sort of the world's first zero food waste book in the sense that it's the making of it was zero food waste and I did everything I could to actually not buy stuff. And it's a a big fat book, as you know, Ali, because you've got a copy now. (laughs) Yeah. An advanced copy. Um, But, yeah, I guess in some ways it probably, yeah, I mean, that was the next step was, you know, to sort of go and write the book that throws cookbooks bit of a bomb under cookbooks, you know? And it's revolutionary to almost start to, and weirdly it's revolutionary to go, how
0: do we not buy things? Yeah. Because so much of our world is engineered and obviously the crux of marketing, which is a big beast and industry on its own, Mm. um, is all
1: about actually you're less than until you have more. Yeah. Uh, it's, we're sucked into it. I mean, this is what makes me laugh. We all like to think that we're individuals and that we're, you know, I watch people go out and get tattoos that shows just how original and wonderfully kind of um, sort of revolutionary they are. And yet we buy into takeaway cups. We buy into brands. We buy into buying. Like, why are we being duped? Like, if you think about it that way, it's like we're suckers, you know? Um, but... Yeah, a lot of people say, well, how do you, you know, how do you live in the way that you live? And I've lived like this most of my life, even during my time as editor of Cosmopolitan, ironically enough, which was all about selling shit to people that they don't need. Um, I simply don't go to the shops. It's as simple as that, you know, even just the grocery store, which I can tell you now like fruit and veg market is about 300 meters from here. So it's pretty easy for me to duck out for some garlic or something if I need to. But I still don't. I'll use up everything I have. I'll repurpose, reuse, make do, work with what I have until I really need to go and buy stuff.
0: Yeah. You touched on before that this is, that way of thinking, that way of living has been a big part of the way that you have always lived. Mm. In fact, you've kind of, you grew up, I understand your eldest of six kids, yeah. grew up in a, on a farm that was fairly self-sustaining.
1: Yeah, it was self-sustaining, not because we, Mum and Dad had this grand vision, they just had no money. So it was survival, really. And it wasn't like a farm, it was just bushland. It was cheap land that had nothing on it. And um, and, and that's where we resided, you know, <laughs> um, with some goats that Dad couldn't afford fencing. So the goats were tethered to trees and we moved them around, you know. Um, so that it, it, it was not romantic by any stretch of the imagination, but um, yeah, it was, we, we didn't go into town. So there were no shops. And so you, we made do with what we had, you know. How did that upbringing, I guess, inform some of your, the way that you live and, and see,
0: I guess, shopping and those sorts of things? Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I was incredibly bored. So it informed a certain amount of just kind of raging ambition um, to get the hell out of you know my childhood. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I worked from the age of eleven and had a business at twelve. You know, so my family called me the capitalist. Um, but um, was that different to what what else was happening in the family? Was that Oh yeah, unique. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, no, the rest of my, my the rest of my brothers are not. They're they're pretty laid back actually. <laughs> what do you think drove that then for you? Oh, boredom. Yeah, of sheer boredom. Um, (laughs) I've got stuff I need to go and do. Yeah, and I explore all of that, I suppose, to a certain extent in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, although I don't really go into my childhood in the book that much because I'm more interested in, yeah, but what now? And what are the bigger themes? And what are the meta themes in in our culture that are worth exploring, you know? Um, And for anyone listening, the book's a reframing of anxiety and sort of bipolar and OCD and a bunch of other Anxious conditions beyond the medical model, so sort of spiritual philosophical sort of framing um, so yes, it's not about going back into my childhood, so so to speak, but um, yeah, I suppose um, i the, the extent to which I look at it is I sort of can see that there were there was a a, a stirring inside me that was spiritual in many ways. So I was exploring a lot of spiritual stuff, reading the Bible, thinking that, you know, um, something would would pop out there that would explain my angst. You know, this is at sort of 11 or 12. So I became a raging capitalist, a mad spiritualist, and also deeply um, anxious with my first kind of anxiety disorder all around sort of 11 or 12. Um, And I don't think any of that's a coincidence. I think, yeah, so to answer your question, I think it was all of that sort of had this momentum, you know. What else is out there? Where, yes. else? Where else do I find yes. or look for? Yeah. And look, in um, doctors since have said, well, you're bipolar and therefore that's part of that picture. And, uh, you know, I find that helpful and unhelpful, you know, in different ways. What's helpful about it? What's unhelpful about it? Well, it was helpful when I was first diagnosed with bipolar, although I was ex- diagnosed with various conditions from the age of 13. Um, in the sense that it put things on a shelf, marked, okay, this is valid, you know. And so family and doctors at the time um, kind of had a bit more compassion and, and so on. Um, and so that was helpful. And it also, drugs obviously helped me at times to be able to get back on my feet and um, sort of, you know, get some habits and um, coping mechanisms in place um, so that, you know, eventually I could be where I am today, where I don't take medication and I manage it all on my own. But I couldn't have done it without the medication and the diagnosis, I suppose, Mm -hmm. when I was younger, because it's taken me until this age to kind of have my own intellectual, philosophical, spiritual understanding of it all because it's a massive issue it's not like it's just kind of cropped up out of the blue um, it's existed throughout time however we've just interpreted it in different ways throughout time
0: yeah and how it's had different meanings and then different ways to counteract it
1: over yeah. time
0: haven't we yeah from excluding people to elevating people to all sorts of things yeah. ways that we've yeah. and
1: even today as i was writing the book the main modus operandi for it is manage how to live with of these conditions. And I suppose my book goes that little bit further and goes actually how to thrive and also see the incredible beauty in the anxious condition. Um, Yeah, so which has resonated because I don't think the manage, manage, the manage kind of um, approach still treats this whopping great kind of thing as a problem that's got to be tamed, drugged, Counselled into submission. Yes, yeah. Make sure it sits in the corner, that yes. doesn't speak, that don't That's we do right. talk about it. That's and
0: right. There is almost a sense of you've got to manage it. So there's still I always wrestle with this sense in society that it's an individual thing, even though we live in this village. Mm. And so yeah. you go and fix that, you manage that, as long as we don't, we don't have to wait. Mm.
1: <laughs> Which brings <laughs> us all back to the materialist capitalist cycle, right? rationalism, materialism, the whole thing, the individual, you know, has free will. And if you don't use it, then that's your problem, you know. Um, But what if there's no such thing as free will? What if we're all part of a community, as you say, and nothing, everything's interlinked, you know? Yeah. What if there's a bigger, deeper, more important, more beautiful thing going on? Yeah. I definitely
0: want to come back to how to make the beast beautiful because it's a it's a gorgeous book and it does it absolutely talks about anxiety in a very very different way and as you say has resonated with so many people. Mm. Um, but you went into the world of journalism. Yep. In that career in in journalism, was was it always going to be journalism? Was there anything else ever on the card?
1: Um, well, yes. I, I sort of um, I, I used to sit in a tree when I, where I was growing up and I used to dream about various things and I'd climb down from the tree and tell my family, announce to my family, various ideas that I had. And one of them was I was going to be the first female prime minister of Australia. Um, I was adamant, apparently. I'm glad that I I dodged that bullet. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, politics was something that I was really interested in. um, And I studied that at first at university before politics and law. And then switched to philosophy and women's studies. Um, it was the the, the mid nineties, and that's what one did, right? Yes, early nineties. Yeah, yes. that's right. Um, yeah, I guess I guess I was probably just quite ambitious. I wanted to charge forward and and make a difference. You know, I think you know naively and probably quite arrogantly as a child, I, I believed I. I, I had ideas <laughs> um, that I, I wanted to share. And to be honest, you know, they're not that much different to, to my ideas and beliefs today. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? That yeah. The, um, what's the platform or how that's going to come out might be might yeah. make, or feel a bit different to what yeah. you are thinking about? But the journalism part. actually, I didn't plan on being a journalist and Uh, Having grown up in a family where there wasn't like access to like daddy didn't have, you know, uh, friends who did this, this and this or I didn't, I I used to go and study the career handbook, you know, at high school, you know, in my lunch break to kind of work out what, you know, what I could be when I grew up. Mm. I didn't know half of the the things in there, you know. Um, And in fact, i I used to, I realised this, I remember this the other day, I used to actually ring, so I decided I was going to be a lawyer. So this is when I was 15. I actually got the yellow pages out and went and looked up lawyers and rang them and asked if they liked their job. Oh, isn't that fantastic? Yeah. I love it. And um, <laughs> I hope some of them said yes. So. Yeah, well, yeah, I know, isn't that funny? <laughs> Probably not a lot. Um I think the most miserable people in the world are female lawyers in their 40s, apparently, statistically speaking. But um, I... And then um, I wound up doing work experience with some of them and some of them I stayed friends with well into adulthood. Um, So, yes, I guess journalism kind of happened to me, I suppose. I started writing and after getting sick at 21, I moved to Melbourne to start a new life. And part of that was studying creative writing in the absence of sort of a plan for life. But yeah, opportunity led to opportunity. And then I found myself, you know, a reporter and a features writer at the Herald Sun working for Rupert Murdoch. Fascinating. How did that come about? Well. I went and did work experience at Sunday Magazine, which was what the magazine was called in the lift-outs in the in the News Limited publications, and the editor was a, a she was a she was a strange lady. I really liked her, but um, she was from the UK and. She, At the end of my week there, I sort of went, thank you so much for having me. And she was like, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) And she asked me what I thought of the magazine and I gave her feedback and she said, come back on Monday. And specifically the food and wine pages because I was passionate about it and I came back. She said, come back on Monday and tell me about it. Anyway, I, I taught myself quark over the weekend and went and reviewed a bunch of restaurants and redesigned her pages for her and said, well, this is what I think it needs to be. And so she said, you have the job. Maybe. So that's, that's how it happened. And then, and then while I was there, I, I sort of became the features writer. I was doing the restaurant reviews and it was a pretty dream gig actually. And then uh, I just started getting a bit worked up about <laughs> Andrew Bolt's contributions in, in the op-ed pages. And so I wrote uh, columns in response and just sent them into the editor of the paper, which is quite separate to the magazine. We were like worlds apart. They started running them and then they said, do you want a regular column? So I became a weekly columnist sharing a page with Andrew Bolt on a Friday. And then I did a column on, in the Sunday Herald Sun and then it sort of just grew. Yeah, it just, um, I put my hand up for things, I suppose, you know, yeah. yeah. See what's next.
0: Yeah. It was right at this point in the conversation that the next door neighbours started jackhammering, <laughs> which meant that we had to relocate rooms but you will soon hear that we quickly picked up the thread of the conversation and continue to unpack Sarah's fascinating story. So you find yourself with a column in yep. the newspaper and soon after you become editor of Cosmo magazine. How did that transition happen?
1: Um, it was kind of a, <laughs> it was an odd one. Um, I, there was a woman actually um, who was sent down from... Um, sort of News Limited, to kind of do a bit of an overview of the magazine in Melbourne and she um, and I got to know each other, um, sort of office politics was such that I was, I, was, I was a lot younger than the others in there and she kind of connected with me and the others all kind of ignored her because she was from Sydney, you know, And when you live in Melbourne. Um, and somebody from Sydney comes down to tell you what to do. It's not received all that well. Anyway, long story short is she was friends with the publisher at Cosmo and mentioned me, and then I think they must have started reading my work. And, um, yeah, I I was flown up to sort of meet with them a few times, and then eventually I just sort of moved up there because they kind of said, look, it, that, we want you, but it's not quite yet. So I just thought I'd move anyway, and within... It was really only a couple of weeks, I was editor of, of Cosmo. Um, yeah, it was very bizarre. Like, you can't plan that kind of thing, right? No, no. <laughs> and I'd never read the magazine. Right. Ever. I'd never... Did it quickly, quickly, once you got the job? Oh, oh yes, yeah. so I went and got boxes of back issues and read them. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't own any colour in my wardrobe. All my shoes were flat, I didn't own a hairdryer. Um, so yes, it was kind of odd. In fact, I started my first day with a broken leg from a mountain bike accident. So I was on crutches, <laughs> which apparently um, was a talking point. I didn't think anything of it, but apparently, everyone felt sorry for either. me. <laughs> 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 so why? Thank <laughs> hey, you. Yes.
0: What did you learn you about me? your experience as editor at
1: Um... Look, I loved it, it was a sport for me. It was a business, it was a job, you know? And I, I kind of, I learned an incredible amount about how to communicate, how to take both complex ideas or tricky ideas or ideas that are emotion, we're emotionally resilient, uh, resistant to and, and communicate it in a way which, and I still use this word, is sexy, you know? Um, and I guess in many ways that steered me with, you know, I mean, I've always, my publisher says this, I think, somewhere in my bio that I tackle the hard problems, you know, and so sugar was really um, unsexy. Nobody wanted to quit sugar, you know, eight years ago. Um, But I made it, I tried to make it sexy. I I took the skills from Cosmo and, um, and it's really about talking to people, you know, Helen Gurley Brown, who I would... Uh, meet up with once a year who started Cosmo you know Mm. 45 years ago and was quite a a groundbreaker. she used to sort of give feedback handwritten feedback on my um, every month on on what I was doing and um, a lot of what she would say was you know fabulous I love this article I could feel myself standing in the bathroom mirror next to the writer as she wrote it you know or you know things like that it was very much about How to write in such a way or how to communicate or how to to live with other people where you're having a conversation, you know? And I suppose, yeah, that was a really great skill. Um, And then, you know, the idea of working with imagery and words. Um, My cookbooks, everybody says they look like magazines and and it's because I do utilise magazine... I mean, words and and pictures, you know, together. Um, It also... You know there was also a lot of office politics um, as you know sort of um, shared in various movies and books on on women's magazines and I was oblivious naively and blissfully oblivious to it for probably the first two years then I had a year of kind of ignoring it and then a year of being bullied and and um, really upset by it, um, and and eventually I left. That's it. Yes, yes. one yes. of my many kamikaze career moves, where I just go right. That's it. I'm out of here. Right. Um, and people speculate as to what's going on, um, and it's basically I I reach a, a, also almost a sort of a psychic point where I just I cannot tolerate a situation any longer. And I did that with MasterChef as well. Yeah. Um, and probably most recently with my iQut sugar business, where if it's no longer serving me, and it's I'm I'm not doing something that's worthwhile, like I'm not contributing something worthwhile, um, it is really it's not an easy decision to make. But once I've made the decision, it's really easy to do. Right, so that clarity comes at a point. Oh, I I wrestle with it for ages, and then, yes, clarity, you know? And I write about it in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, about how you've got to jump first. You jump and life will catch you. And, you know, I use this corny thing like, angel wings sprout and carry you to where you need to go. It's called grace in the spiritual tradition. Um, And I, I, have experienced it firsthand Um, nobody pushes me I jump but generally it's because I've run out of other options I actually cannot function in whatever circumstances um, a day longer so I jump and I do get caught I always land in a better spot and I've come to trust that you know I was just thinking each time you do that that just gives you strength And maybe you do it a little bit sooner. Do you know what it (laughs) is? angel wings obviously don't exist. And the anecdote I use in the book is that you can't go to a shop and buy angel wings. There's no angel wings shop. You've got to jump first, you know, and that's the difficult bit, especially for our culture because we somehow think that there's something that we can go and buy, you know, to go back to that point. Um, But it's trust. It's trusting the flow of life and... It can be explained at a quantum physics level. it can be explained by the spiritualist. It's one of the most incredibly uh, fundamental aspect of life that we just don't get a lot of the time. And um, when you can touch it, I think it starts to build your life in a very different way. So um, yeah, it's a knowing you have to have internally. don't become touching on as well. Yeah. it's not something you can buying a book or even going and What's the guru? experiences also that lead you to the decision? So if you've wrestled honestly with yourself to arrive at the point where you're going to jump, that's the groundwork. That's where the trust comes into play at a really fundamental psychological um, level. It's really quite straightforward. You've done that much groundwork. You have progressed and evolved during that angsty period. And I'm sure people listening have had to go through it when they've had to leave a partner or, or make a big job transition or decide which city they're going to live in. They're the big turning point moments. The, nobody takes those lightly. You do a lot of kind of rumination, a lot of soul searching leading up to it. That's the groundwork. That's what carries you. That's, that's the angel wings, you know? Yeah. Um, it's part of the process. And the, the trust is yeah. trusting you've done the work. You've done, you've done the work and the decision that you make now doesn't really matter what decision you make because it's that groundwork which will be the thing that will carry you, not the actual, you know, left or right, stay with him, leave, leave you know, Brisbane, Melbourne, you know, like <laughs> that doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. So you touched on before the, the I quit sugar, which has been a big part of your world for eight years. Eight, eight years, yeah, yes, almost eight years, yeah. And at the time, it came out of a, um, a personal necessity in mm. terms of, uh, you know, an autoimmune disease that you were combating for yourself mm. and going down that path and then just sort of writing about that, that process along the side. And it really resonated with people um, yeah. as you started to do that. What was it about it, do you think, that resonated with others? Um... I think, again, it's those Cosmos skills, right? Because I was writing about it in a way where I was really going down layer after layer, talking about just the impact that it had on me and the addiction, basically. I mean, really, the sugar debate covers off so many deeply challenging aspects of contemporary life. It's the the emotional aspect of addiction, it's the emotional aspect of the comfort, and if we're talking about grasping outwards, you know, that's what most of us grasp out to, the 3pm muffin, you know, or the after dinner, chocolate or ice cream, you know. Um, and then um, there's the whole weight gain, weight loss, diet kind of part of the puzzle, you know. Um, and and then there's also the, the, the political aspect, you know, the food industry. Like the big part of what I had to do with the, what I was you know, educating people on. Um, And because the whole microchip business was an education business for about five years, um, four or five years. I had to educate people in why sugar was bad for us, why the, you know, it was uh, big business, was mm-hmm. dupiness into it and the government was complicit without getting too heavy, you know, I just had to keep that sexy. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> yeah. yeah. And, um, and then, and then, you know, and then I sort of then offered something of a solution, I suppose, a, a, you know, a way that individuals could take back control from that scenario, from their addictions and the political aspect of things. Um, So yeah, I think that all of it was an eye-opener for people and then they also could see, oh, finally I might be able to do something about this. It made intuitive sense. Hmm. You know, I'd say to people, hey, do you reckon the reason you've put on weight is the sugar? Like, is it the muffin that you eat every single day at three o'clock? And you say that to people and they go, yeah, without a doubt. Never thought of it that way, but yeah. Um, and I think that resonated, it was the first time that, I don't know, if you tell people, if you share with somebody something that is true, it resonates and then they enrol, you know, they... And people an experiment with it as well, there's something exactly. personal I can play with it and I know in your books you almost, you know, just encourage people to go it's an invite. keep it going for a couple you of You only weeks. need two weeks to kind of know if it's going to work or not, you know, um, you'll get the feedback and that's the great thing about our bodies, you know, and the great thing about sugar, if I can put it that way, is that unlike toxic oils and other kind of crappy stuff in our diet. Um, our bodies respond very quickly when sugar is taken out of the diet, and we, really it's about two weeks. Yeah. So you do start to notice shifts, but also the damage that you may have done to your body can be reversed. Uh, God, I'm sounding like I'm on my <laughs> my old um, bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, off I go. And it has been, like I said, an educational, um, it was an
0: educational business. You've had a number of cookbooks come out about it. Mm. Not, and. It, not only with, across Australia, but you know, across internationally, yeah. there was a conversation that really was probably sparked in a lot of ways from,
1: from a lot of the work that you were doing and the research and the connection that you were having. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't doing the research per se. I did do some studies um, and did some stuff with Sydney University at one stage, but um, I was just the conduit. So the scientists were having these boring discussions out in oblivion, you know, Um, and I'd go to these conferences, you know, I'd go to obesity conferences and I'd sometimes talk or I'd talk to the scientists or whatever. Um, I just made their their research, yeah, digestible, you know. Um, So, yeah, I was a conduit, essentially. Um, But that took its own work, you know, and own research, I suppose, yeah. And earlier this year, you touched on one of your kamikaze moves mm. was to pull the plug on that yeah. business, which yeah. is
0: an, was a massive business, I understand you had about 23 staff at yeah, the peak. Yeah. It was, um, I guess in a lot of ways, in a very commercialised capitalist world, we mm. are
1: taught when you've got a business, grow at scale, grow mm. it, hustle, hustle, grow at scale, sell it. And you no doubt wrestled with that. What was the debate going on in your in head? my head? Yeah, my angel wings. <laughs> what were the angel the angel wings that um, yeah helped me make that decision in the end? Um, well, there was a couple of things. It's, it, I'll explain it as succinctly as I can. So when I first started to do well out of the business, I was living in an army shed, having lost everything in the forest. And uh, things started to take off. I, I taught myself how to make e-books and put out an e-book, became an Amazon bestseller, and therefore, and then book published it as a print book, which was completely back to front to how things were done back then. Um, And it sort of grew and I got an accountant and he sat down with me in his accounting way and said, you know, what do you want to do with this? And I said, well, um, he said, what are your financial goals? And I said, I don't have financial goals, you know, and he said, make something up. And I said, all right, I want to be able to retire in five years time with enough money to live at a basic wage until I'm 94. and he went okay. Anyway, five years later, he came back to me and said, "Oh, you've reached your goal." And um, I, was, I was kind of a bit shocked. I was like, "All oh, right, okay. Well, what am I going to do now?" And I went, "Okay, well, what I should do is sell the business because what I want to do is to keep in the activist space. I want to keep educating, and without relying on a, a wage necessarily. I want to do it without needing the money, or yeah. you know, I want to do it independently of money." Um, and it's fairly easy for me because I don't need a lot of money. I don't own the car. I don't go to the shops. I, go to <laughs> shops. I don't have expensive habits. Um, so uh, I set, went about selling the business, you know, trying to sell the business. And I was approached sort of a year or two earlier by some media companies who were interested, and they went very much under the bonnet and had a look at it. And it wasn't the right time for me because I was still having uh, there was still work for me to do. And uh, anyway, so a number of different parties, I've I've got somebody involved, take it out, but it was to not have me in the business, and nobody could comprehend that. I'd set up the business with the CEO, we were running it without me, ostensibly, so that it could be a separate entity to, you know, I wish it could be separate to Sarah Wilson. Um, I did all the right things, but um, really at the end of the day, everybody... And, and look, there was a few, so there was two uh, buyers, potential buyers that got right to the eleventh hour, and then for various internal reasons had to pull out. It was very taxing on the staff because we couldn't actually make new marketing decisions or new, you know, leads. You you know. Know. Everything's on hold. Everything's on hold, and it was demoralising for everybody involved. And um, staff didn't really know what was going on. So after a year of that. Because I'd also made the commitment to never being one of those sad people that gets the Toyota Corolla and then goes, I want the BMW and it never ends, right? Yeah. You know, people will say oh, they can retire at 50 and they're still working at 70, not out of happiness, but because they've bought more stuff, they've got to pay back, you know? Um, so that's when I, I made the decision. And it was because to keep going, I had to scale. That's not my, in my DNA. Um, It would mean that the business would no longer be about making a difference and educating, it would be just about accumulating clicks, you know. That bored me, that wasn't going to be challenging. Um, And, uh, you know, and so therefore I couldn't be in the business but people only wanted to buy the business if I was in it, you know. And I was happy for somebody to take it because I'd done my work I'd really done my work. I'd educated. I was happy for for somebody to go and take it and take it to the world or whatever. And I'm, well, if I'm happy for that, I'm happy for people to just kind of who are in the sugar, no sugar space to kind of you know take my place and and so on. So I decided to shut down the business. I got approached by a number of people wanting to know what I was doing with the recipes, with the content, with the technology. So I came up with this idea that I would um, put out a expressions of interest. If people wanted to buy it, these were the prices. This is the timeline. They had 21 days to do due diligence, the whole thing. There would be no bargaining on the price. Um, and it's first in first served. And all the money was going to go to charity. Um, so don't don't come and tie kick me because, like, they'll be dicking me around. Yep. I've got nothing to win from this. I don't have to sell the assets, but they're worth something and... So, yeah, that's what I did. Um, and nobody understood it. And, of course, the papers reported that Sir Sam Wood um, bought the recipes and he was thoroughly decent in the whole process and really got it. Yeah. But, of course, the papers report that Sam Wood bought I Quit Sugar and was now mm-hmm. on in business. Nobody kind of thought, oh, that's quite an interesting story that somebody has donated their funds to charity. It yeah, just kind of got yeah. completely forgotten, you know? Yeah, yeah. Did you get any kind of, yeah, I guess backlash? People just going, what are you doing? Um, not so much. Uh, oh, yes, I did. I got, well, <coughs> what I did experience, uh, I guess it's a version of that, is, and I hate to say it, I would say probably two dozen blokes from around the world. Who decided they could come and save me from myself? So it was, I've got a solution for you. I'll take your business off your hands. You know, blah 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 blah. And it was um, quite funny how it was a phenomenon. I would sort of say to my accountant, "Ah, another another bloke, you know, on a Isn't white a horse rescue." Yes, I know. <laughs> it was so funny. It's like, what part of what I've done do you not understand? Yeah. Like, I do not oh, okay. want some bloke. From you know um, Texas to come and take over my business, um, you know, like anyway. Um, so that was quite that was a phenomenon. <laughs> and then I had a bunch of big corporates like so a hotel chain, a bank, um, a property construction business, who some people fairly high up in the chain loved the idea of it and wanted me to become an ambassador for their brands, which is just hilarious, right? Um, but I actually found that quite interesting. I was like, right, that's kind of interesting to observe that these brands are wanting to be part of the messaging, um, and they figure they they can just buy it. You know, again, they miss the point. Yes. You know. Yeah. Um, but we're in a commercial world, and it's unknown, and influences on social media, I know. and so it's a different game. So yeah, eventually I wrote a blog post, and it's sort of my wage manifesto, and I outlined really clearly what I now do. Um, like I my rates are this and that, and this is what I earn my, my money from, and this is what I give to charity. So anything that's a spin-off of the I quit Sugar brand, because I know I still own it, right? Um, is uh, goes into my philanthropic trust and I, I'm about to announce um, uh, the, the charity that I'll be working with and how it's all gonna work. It's sort of a tech platform that enables people to get involved as well, which is great. Yes. Um, but, um, yeah, it's sort of, it is, it's a, I had to sort of outline it all and so that there's clear boundaries and people understand how it works. But, so the, the I Quit Sugar recommends Tick, that's on a bunch of yeah. products. I'm actually growing that because there was interest in it. and I was like, okay, I'll continue it. However, these are the prices and all the profits go to charity. Um, so, again, don't mess me around, mm. you can be part of it or not. So, yeah. And that's actually being received really nicely. There's some really beautiful partnerships um, and big brands going, well, we want to be part of it. And brands actually shifting their packaging um, stuff because it also includes um, sustainable packaging and production processes yeah. to to be able to get the tick. Um, because, you know, why not? all <laughs> right. well, That kind of, yeah, that, that influences yeah, the message. exactly. And a couple of people have changed... Their packaging as a result and yeah. to, to be able to get the tick so that just has started and there's a few other bits and pieces like that but because I didn't sell the my brand I've been able to hang on to it and all this other stuff has started to happen which then will enable me to do kind of I'll have of my own money to be able to help charities and work with them and leverage what they're already doing mm. so that yeah just opens up a whole bunch of other doors yeah, possibilities, but done, of creation yeah. in your own way. Exactly. And with the freedom to be able to make the call. That's what all this has been about for me, is freedom mm-hmm. to, to follow my, I guess, ethical path. Yeah. I'm very fortunate because not everybody has that freedom. Does it feel free right now? Like it does. That? But It does. But psychologically, it takes a lot of work daily for me to be able to sit in that freedom because we need boundaries as humans. We actually don't, um, you know, there's a lot of existential philosophers, Kierkegaard, that define, you know, for instance, defines um, anxiety as the awareness of our own freedom. Um, And it's true, that's why so many of us get locked into jobs, marriages, mortgages. Because it is in fact a safer place, you know, um, even if it's painful at times or a lot of the time. Um, so I, I guess I've signed up for this way of living, and it takes diligence, and um, it's a, it's an, it's it's an experiment, you know. It's um yeah yeah it would be fascinating. But what buttons does it push, and, and how, and why, and when. And how to define it's simple things like how to define your day? Yeah. If I don't have to do anything, well, how am I going to set up, you know, set structures so I don't just kind of loll around in cafes doing a cryptic crossword, you know? <laughs> Which is alright for a week, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <half an> hour. <laughs> I, I would say. but yes, it is. Um, it you, I have to set up my boundaries, you know, and I have to set up my structures and my community and and sense of purpose. Um, and it's kind of good. It's a good, it's a good challenge. Coming back to uh, the book that first we make, the, the Beast Beautiful, that's
0: nearly two years old. It's, it was very different to any other book that you had put out. Mm. Um, and in some ways, the thing that
1: struck me not only was it vulnerable, it was a conversation around anxiety. And as you mentioned before, uh, putting anxiety in a way that we've probably we don't talk
0: about it, the mm. medical model version of it. Um, in fact, I
1: think you even call, call you know, obviously the beast, but caught your mate. Yeah. Um, this anxiety. What struck me about this book was just how beautifully written it was.
0: It was almost like this piece of art. Oh,
1: thank this you. creation.
0: <laughs> was that intentional
1: or did that come about as you started to pull it together? Um, well, it's kind of how I... I I write on my blog um, it's uh, I, I guess you don't think I know I'm gonna write a book that's future people <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 yeah. shouldn't um, but there can be different ways I guess you know you can go down the research arm you could could have oh down yeah very memoir um, oh yeah no I tried the memoir thing and that didn't work out for me at all like you know in 1975 <laughs> um, I was bored by it yeah like I tried it you know um, yeah, I was fortunate enough, the process of writing the book was very much the process of actually accepting my own anxiety and my own shit. Mm. I had to because this book was going to come out and everyone around me would know what, like most of my friends and a lot of my family didn't really know the story because you kind of create, you know, you... um. You create a sanitised version of the story, you know, for everybody. Um, but there was no hiding once it came out. But that in itself was a form of therapy and held me accountable. Um, I had a, I have a publisher who totally trusts me and gave me a full reign, like the longest leash. Um, and... I mean, I went through absolute agony writing that book. And I sort of, I won't give away the end to anyone who hasn't read it, but I think I I rattle off how many suicide attempts, miscarriages, um, you know, houses I'd lived in, countries I'd lived in throughout the process of writing the book. I went through the ringer, you know. I had to spend the afternoon quiet after I'd finished reading it because there was this sense of, and yet there was a realness. About well, some of, some, there were some chapters that I wrote while in an anxiety, a deep panic attack at three in the morning, and I wrote it out, you know. Um, I don't know why. I mean, there's some. But sometimes people r- repeat bits of the book back to me. I'm like, did I write that? I Actually, I think there's bits where I don't remember yeah. um, much about writing it. And I know that there were times where I wrote some of it in, on manic highs, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um and some in absolute places of despair, but I just kept going. And that comes from a bit of maturity because I tried to write the book seven, eight years ago. And of course, I Quit Sugar came off. In fact, it was longer than that now. Um, It was, you know, close to nine years ago. I Quit Sugar stemmed from it because I couldn't write the anxiety book. I actually got 60,000 words in and aborted it. And I started cooking food in my army shed in the forest, you know, and Twitter had been invented. So I started sharing some of my ideas and, and it came, came about. Um, so, why was the timing right? Now? Yeah. As I say, in the book, sheer years on the planet. Yeah. You know, like. Um, I can confront this. I can't oh, talk and this, also, sorry. the other thing, the other thing is, egoically, I had books that sold. So my publisher was going to trust me because she knew that people would buy what I wrote. Yeah, and it wasn't a risk for her. So therefore, I had the freedom. And also for me as well, like, I think women, we tend to do this. Like, I can go back to the question you asked a little while back, Ali, about, you know, sort of what's it like living as I do now and, you know, the boundaries and waking up each day going, hmm how do I what start this day <laughs> and, you know, not flounder, um, is that there's a bit of an egoic attachment to the fact that, oh, I've achieved XYZ, i Z. I've done a certain amount to be able to tick off the tick list and, I don't know, impress my parents, um, be received in a valid way by the media, yep. the trolls, whoever it might be, Therefore, I'm allowed. You know, I'm allowed to choose how I live my life, or I'm allowed to write a, the book that is absolutely my truth. Um, so, yeah, there is some comfort that enabled me um, this to space to actually going. space. Yeah, the space. Yep. Yeah, there was nothing else to prove. A bit of permission. Point. I had permission. Yeah, yeah, and also age. I mean, I'm 44. And I had to confront a bunch of things. And also there's a moment in the book where I mention where I had nothing left. I had no no money, no possessions, and I was it was a suicidal moment. And I was willing to die, and it seemed like a really logical, fair enough thing to do because there was nothing left. I'd hit I'd hit the cul-sack of my being, you know. Um, and I kind of looked at myself in the mirror because I was lying on the floor of my bedroom and I just went, oh, hang on. Here's an idea. If I've got nothing left and nobody, I'd become quite invisible. For nine months I'd been sort of uh, closeted into a, uh, with no money and, and, and I could barely walk. So I was kind of shut off from the world. Um, I was like, oh my God, I could actually just do it my own way. Like, it's kind of option A or option B, and option B would not be an option if life was okay, right? Because option B was still pretty grim and scary. Yes. But um, I was... So, and option B, obviously, was to do life my own way with just the clothes on my back. Um, And having had that experience and that... made that choice to live, it's kind of made everything else since feel okay, because... If all else fails, you know, like I can just go back to, I don't know, option B, walking around with just the clothes on my back, invisible to the world, Yeah. you know, and I've, I've done it and I survived. So um, it's it's actually when you start from a really grim starting point, <laughs> anything else is kind of okay. But fascinating that, that that came to you in that moment and then mm. it almost...
0: Um, That you heard it because it's one thing for it to come to you but it's another thing to have heard it in that moment Mm. um to actually go
1: okay well actually i could do whatever i like yeah there's no rules anymore you know what we all can we all can we can all choose within the framework of our limitations as human beings, where we don't actually have free will, but we can steer things, we can steer things. We can, What we can choose is not to be trapped, you know? We can still actually do exactly the same thing, go to work at the same time, have the children, and do the soccer practice on weekends. The choice is about how we approach it. Is it freedom or is it servitude, you know? The choice is that, not necessarily about whether you fling your way off to Greek islands to live in a. So it's not the external; it's it's the it, internal. It's that's the right. Viktor Frankl. I saw a meme on some stoicism site the other day, and it said something like, you know, um, nobody can take away from me how I choose to respond to circumstances. That's what you always do have free will over. Uh, that's where the important choice comes into play. When you, when you listen to that in that moment, some mm. of you yourself in the mirror, mm. what did you do then? Oh, I actually share it in the book. I got up, I hadn't slept for three days and I was wearing these revolting, st- stenchy, like, uh, t- uh, what are they called? Trying pyjamas. And I got up and ate um, peanut butter out of the fridge with a spoon. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Really can do life my way. That, that's right,
1: that's right. Oh, but uh, off the back of that, I actually had to go and get acupuncture on my ovaries because I've been told I never have children. And this was the following day, right? And it was so surreal. Carrie ann Kennelly rang. I don't, I don't know her, right? i have met her twice as a guest on her show. She rang my mobile and was actually at the acupuncturist with needles in my ovaries. And um, she asked me to fill in on her sh- TV show and um, as a host. And I was like, but you've got the right person. I'm not a host. And she said, oh, I think you'd be wonderful. And um, so I had to go in the following week and host her show, never having read an auto cue. And I was so sick and just so, I mean, you know, I was barely able to walk, you know, and and, um, so on. And, And I was in a pretty bad way. But off the back of that, somebody saw me who became the casting agent for MasterChef. And this whole, and within like a couple of months, I was the host of MasterChef. I mean, that is weird, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's that proof of just show up, like just show up. Show up. But also sometimes, a small move like that, because it was really just a choice in attitude, right? A change in attitude. It just blew apart the rut that I was in, the flow of the life of life that I had been stuck in. It just blew it apart, and off I went in a complete like life rewarded me. You know the logic of life rewarded me, and just I mean it ended up on a route. It was incredible, but it was um, it was a bit of a distraction, a side a side yeah. trip. You know, In another way, it's almost like it's another version of jumping, like totally the, that choice. Disruption is wonderful. Yeah. The yeah, internal internal disruption. Let's just jump. Correct. Let's just make that choice. My like meditation that. teacher quotes. Um, a Vedic term, a phrase. I mean, I don't know what it is in in Sanskrit, but it's it means do what you're not doing when 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 things are shit and you're stuck and it's Groundhog Day. Do what you're not doing. It's really the only thing you can do. Logically, it makes sense. Energetically, it, it actually plays out. And um, it's like you know George Costanza. You know, remember he um, he worked out that if he was just you know do the opposite, do the opposite exactly. <laughs> and I live that. I have to watch myself. It takes a lot of discipline to sort of see it, and I go, right. And it's, I call it rather politically, throwing a bomb onto the situation. Sometimes you just got to go and throw, throw the opposite, mm, yeah, blow yeah. things up a bit. What's the upside of anxiety? Oh, there's quite a few, I suppose. I mean, from an evolutionary point of view, it makes sense. And when you tap into that, you go, ah, you know, they've done studies on. Um, Refer to this in the book chimpanzees, where they displayed OCD symptoms, you know, the one that they'll bully and ostracize, seven on outside. When they removed those from the clan, that clan, I think, survived only one generation more because um, they needed these two percenters of the population to ensure um, safety, hygiene. They're the ones that stayed awake all night and would hear when the lion was approaching. So um, when you start to read that, you go, oh, that's pretty cool. So I think you know, realising you're part of a a special group that is required. So OCD and bipolar in particular, there's lots of studies that show that they're necessary. They're necessary to the survival of the human race. Um, And then, you know, I think um, also the main thing is that anxiety takes you on a journey that you have to go on. Right, because that's what the the burning anxiety in you forces you to go and do a bunch of things, question a bunch of things in a deeply uncomfortable way. You go through the ringer. it is ugly. You don't know that it's taking you there at the time, you're just in pain. But what ends up happening is you go out there in the world, you might have addictions, you might go out buying things, you might think it's about getting a new boyfriend, a new house, a new city, whatever it is. Eventually all that fails. So you've got to go through that whole process Eventually, you work it out and you go, I'm rendered choiceless. I give up. Essentially, it's anxiety takes you to the point where you give up. When you give up, you realise you've found the very thing that you're looking for all along, which is a relationship with yourself.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's like, what the fuck is this all about? And you actually work it out. And um, I don't think there's too many... I don't, think there's, I don't think you can get to it any other <laughs> no, way. No, coming back to your point before, it's actually the work... That then makes that much more meaningful. Yeah. You can't be given that. It forces you to do the work because there's no other way. You will have anxiety for the rest of your life. Your shit will come back and bite you over and over again. Eventually, it'll slap you down so hard. You've got to face yourself. And and it takes you to the place that actually was the trigger for your anxiety in the first place because I believe that anxiety is a deep-rooted sense that there's something more to life, you know. So it actually... You know, I quote David Brooks, who's an incredible New York Times conservative writer. He's an economics writer, which is bizarre, but he wrote a book and um, I've heard him on podcasts since. And he sort of said that that whole journey is that it doesn't make you happy per se, but he said, that's not what I want. It takes, it it brings you character. And I think most of us would love to be a person of character rather than a happy, happy person. Mm. Happiness comes with character. Character's much bigger. It can encapsulate so much more. Well, it's not the tapestry of life. Like, happiness is not... No. Character's not fleeting. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, happiness yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think that's the, the be- that's the beauty of anxiety that I'm referring to. And, and I've kind of ruined it for anyone listening to, to this because that's the trajectory of the book. I to sort of take the reader on this kind of meandering discussion that arises at that point. But the book's still worth reading because it's
0: beautifully <laughs> So your next book that is coming, coming out, out?
1: In, in a week? Soon, really? Yeah, yeah soon. end of this month. Um, Simplicious Flow. So it's part two to my most recent cookbook, which is called Simplicious, which is the idea of simple and delicious. And it's taking that notion of consuming less into the kitchen. Um, it says a big screaming thing on the cover, this is not a normal cookbook. Because when Ingrid, my publisher, asked if I could do one last cookbook, I said, well, only if it's not a normal cookbook because they're so wasteful. So um, this book works to, uh, instead of just like recipe directions, recipe directions, and you go and buy a bunch of ingredients and then they sit and collect weevils in the cupboard, it uh, it kind of has a narrow number of Ingredients throughout the book. It's 348 recipes, so it's a huge book. But um, it also works with these, what I call capsule cooks, where it's a shopping list, not an ingredients list. So it gives you a shopping list, sort of 8 to 13 things that you go and buy, ingredients essentially, mm-hmm. like a broccoli, you know, and you use up the whole lot over the course of a week to make maybe four. Lunches, or five dinners, or um, you know, sort of a bunch of lunch boxes for five, you know, for five days for four kids and things like that. So, so it's actually written in the way that we operate. It's like meal plans. Yeah. So they're mini meal plans. That they're capsule cooks. Like you buy all these ingredients and you can kind of perform this whole capsule and so the broccoli stalk that you didn't use on wednesday becomes such and such and in fact you really only cook for the first two days and then the final three days are assembling the things you cooked on monday and tuesday if that makes sense so yeah it's how i think natural cooks operate and even natural cooks will like the fact that thinking's done for them you know it's eight ingredients yeah yeah so I, i operate with that and then it's zero food waste Essentially, so all throughout I um, <laughs> bludgeon people over the head with my, you know, sort of plastic-free etc. approaches. So I've got dorky things like, so, you know, the keep cups and the non-disposable takeaway coffee cups. I don't even do those, so I won't buy them. What I do is I get the glass jars that you know food and things come in, and I get the rubber bands from the asparagus and the kale, you know, that you can't avoid, and they wind round the cup and they become your silicon holder. So that's my key so cup. So you've got your own key cup. Yeah. yeah. you and manage to pay $30 or whatever it is Because how many times do you come across people, oh, I broke my key cup, I can't afford to keep buying them. It's like, all right, we'll just get an old jar and those rubber bands. So um, it's full of, you know, um, tips like that as well. And as well, you know, I've got India and I do to write how to have the perfect compost set up, even if you're living in an apartment. Right. And just things like that. So they're sort of interspersed in amongst the, the sexy recipes. And it's crossed over rural living, city living, yeah. family. Yeah, family and singles. Yeah. yeah, I incorporate family and singles because, um, yeah, as, as I do with all my books. Yeah, yeah, so. What's exciting you about? What's next? Ah, uh, um, Well, I'm writing my next book. I've just started two weeks ago. It's generally, it generally takes me two years to write a book both beast and the cookbooks because i i don't know i'm a perfectionist i was saying before we started recording it's it's sort of my achilles heel but then it's also i kind of now can take some comfort from the fact that maybe my perfectionism pays off you know um so yeah this next book i am and this is probably some of that um I've got permission. I'm allowing myself a couple of months, literally. I I set aside Thursdays and Fridays and I am researching. I'm trying to work out where people are at. And it's sort of around the area of tapping into what matters. Mm -hmm. But I'm trying to find the entry point, you know. Um, So I'm just kind of reading, really like. Deeply, and that's pretty much what I do all weekend. I'm reading and finding weird articles on things, and and just trying to sort of see and reading forums just to see what people are talking about and what's mattering. So don't know yet, but I'm enjoying something that I've never been good at, which is taking my time. Yeah, and then yeah, yeah. So then being able to dive, and as you say, trying to find an entry point to something like that is, it'll be fascinating to yeah. see what kind of rabbit warrens you go down and go Well I'm trying to do this creative something. process without all the self-doubt that comes with every other project I've ever done. So writing Trust We Made the Beast Beautiful was um harrowing because I doubted myself the entire way um so I'm going to try to do this differently care just as much but maybe not doubt quite as much. What are you going to do when doubt shows up? Oh, I don't know, just sit in it, play around in it. (laughs) (laughs) Hate myself for a bit, you know, then get a grip. Look, you know, um, I think, again, probably um, remember some of the stuff I wrote in First We Make the Beast Beautiful, which is trust the process, do the pain. Yeah. Yeah, it's just pain. But, um, yeah, so I'm excited about that. Um, I've also, yeah... um, I've also sort of started the fostering process, so I'm doing training to become a foster parent, so um, that's pretty exciting and I've had to carve out a lot of space for that. That's so, huge yeah 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 so a got to care for yourself and others and yeah understanding just that world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. so um, that's, a, that's been a hard point to get to just because it's required giving up on having my own children so yeah. you know and that's it's grief oh yeah yeah I've been doing the grief yes yeah no doubt there's more to come yes yeah 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 so lifetime work and meaningful work yeah absolutely yeah absolutely um so yeah they're probably there and summer bring on summer oh my god this is my (laughs) first winter in Australia it was an experiment to see if I in eight years because I take off most years um so I I did it. <laughs> I did a winter, yes. um, stayed still. Um, but yeah, I love summer. Yeah, I think you do too, judging by. Well, yes. No, I can welcome you to the Gold Coast if you really want a winter <laughs> in Australia, because we uh, we do winter as well. Yeah, <laughs> Sydney, Really, we can't complain, Sydney either. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good. I want to come full circle. The name of this podcast is called Standout
0: Life. When you hear that term, what does it mean to you to live a standout?
1: Um, a standout life is one where you're actually going to leave some kind of legacy. So I don't think it's necessarily, well, I would like to take its meaning, I choose to take its meaning away from the narcissistic notion of standing out, um, but I think it's more about having, yeah, it's a, it's a bold and brave attempt to leave something of a legacy, because I think that's what we're on the planet to do, you know. Yeah, love it. Leave the world different. Yeah, Leave it impacted. Yeah,
0: yeah. Thank you, Sarah. It's been oh, such a
1: pleasure. To to
0: Thanks, Ali. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out A Real World Guide to Get Clear, Find Purpose, and Become the Boss of Busy. You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au.